The number of developers the world wants to solve software needs is a much bigger number than the number of developers that are produced by the university system. Welcome to Research Radio, the official podcast of Contrary Research. Contrary Research is the best starting place to understand any private tech company. In each episode, we dive deep into the most important conversations and companies in technology. This show is your first step to understanding any startup. I'm your host, Kyle Harrison, general partner at Contrary. For more info and to read our full research reports, visit research.contrary.com. Myself, guests, and Contrary may have financial interest in the companies discussed. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as investment advice. As always, do your own research before making any financial decisions. Today, we're talking to Siraj Patel, who heads up MongoDB Ventures. Now, there's a pretty good chance you've at least heard of MongoDB. It's an open source NoSQL database used by everyone from massive companies like Forbes, Wells Fargo, Toyota, to a long tail of more than 46,000 other customers. MongoDB Ventures is Mongo's venture capital arm. It focuses on investing in early stage companies that are building innovative developer-focused technologies, which help the MongoDB ecosystem to grow. It's an interesting fund, which thanks to his position has a really unique perspective on the industry. So to pick his brain on the world of data, we're joined by Siraj Patel, who leads MongoDB Ventures. We chatted about MongoDB, the evolving world of database infrastructure, and the impact of generative AI on software development. Hope you enjoy. All right, Siraj, thank you so much for joining me. I'm super excited to get to dig in with you. Thanks for having me, Kyle. I'm excited. I remember the first time you and I chatted, the thing that struck me the most was basically you get to sit at this really interesting place within MongoDB to see a bunch of different things that are going on. Unlike you know a typical investor where they sort of have their purview, you get to see the company's experience, but also then get to go invest and, and think about how some of these companies will play out. So I'm uh, super excited to get your perspective. But for those of folks who don't know, maybe give us the 30-second overview on MongoDB as a business, as well as just walk me through the sort of vision of uh, MongoDB Ventures and, and what you're focused on. Yeah, absolutely. So MongoDB is a public company. We deliver to market what we call the developer data platform. I think the, the good way to think about it is the intersection of software development and operational data is what MongoDB cares about. It started with an OLTP database, but really, as we've thought about everything people do and developers do with operational data, we've expanded into the developer data platform, which now has things like full text search and more recently stream processing and, of course, vector search, which people are pretty excited about. The company itself, we passed a billion dollars in revenue. And not only do we have a lot of amazing enterprise customers that contribute to that revenue, but we still, even as a large company, have a great bottoms-up developer motion. So we passed 150,000 signups for Atlas, our cloud product, earlier this summer. And so we launched Ventures a year ago as a way to find new and interesting technologies to introduce to that customer base. And we think that we have a lot to offer founders. Certainly, as we're seeing more founders going after a similar cloud story or bottoms-up developer motion, we want to make our operators that have made MongoDB successful accessible to those founders. We also want to make companies that want to integrate with MongoDB want to give them the opportunity to have a founder or sorry, an engineering and product team on our side uh, that's able to help with that integration. And then, lastly, and, and often most exciting for founders, we want to figure out ways to co-market with them and co-sell with them. Very cool. Well, you touched on first topic, uh, it would be fun to dig into. 
and basically talk about open source and, and monetization. Because there's a ton of really interesting companies out there that have built open source motions, but they're all trying to strike that balance of how to monetize. And something that I thought was interesting, you know, you look at what a lot of folks think of as like a vanity metric of, of measuring open source traction, which is just things like GitHub stars, right? And you look at a bunch of other databases, you, know, you think about things like Redis and Superbase and Neo4j, all, all companies that have, you know, different perspectives, different focuses, specialties, whatever. But Mongo isn't necessarily the one that has the highest number of stars, which again, at the end of the day is like a vanity metric. But to your point that you made earlier, you guys passed a billion dollars in revenue. Like you're very clearly figured out monetization. And so the first question that comes to mind is, is there something sort of special about the way that Mongo has approached monetization that has made it more capable of, of sort of translating open source traction into monetization? Or how has Mongo kind of dealt with that? And then how does that inform what you look for in open source companies that you spend time with? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point that I think about a lot. You look at something like Redis, which is super pervasive in the ecosystem, but then you think about what is the monetizable potential of a cache? What is the barrier to monetizing a cache versus monetizing an OLTP database? And it's different. So there's different pools of your open source user base that are monetizable depending on your product and the difficulty of scaling your product and how mission critical that product really is to your applications. And so I think all of that contributed to MongoDB's success. But if I think through conversations I've had with our executives, and of course, all of this happened before I came to MongoDB, so I can't take any credit, but they, they talk a lot about, especially Silicon Valley tends to forget that MongoDB really was an on-premise enterprise software company and IPO'd having had a incredible direct sales force that was able to build our revenue to the point of IPO. And then Atlas was started right before our IPO and has quickly grown. And Atlas is our managed cloud service. So there really was a combination of both. And the operators at MongoDB were successfully able to transition from that on-premise motion to the cloud motion, which really is where a lot of our growth comes from today. Very cool. And so walk me through that. So now with that sort of vantage point of that you guys have done a really good job of understanding and interpreting where are we providing. In fact, I, come, I find myself talking about this with a bunch of people pretty frequently. There, this idea of like value creation and value capture. You're very clearly creating that value for folks, but there's a reason you guys have been able to capture it. How does that inform when you go look at different startups that are maybe trying to build an open source motion, what are you looking for that signifies a company that you think will be you know, successful at monetization? I think it's a very good understanding of the developer motion and where the pain points are for a developer. I'll give you an example from our portfolio. A company called Payload was out of the YC Summer 22 batch for a few founders from Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's an open source CMS company and it's very developer first motion, TypeScript centric. What they understood viscerally is one, developers want a very developer first CMS to use, but they don't necessarily want to deploy that CMS themselves and manage the ongoing maintenance of that CMS. And so they needed to make it very easy to use and the open source product was, is incredibly easy to adopt. But they knew that a lot of the friction would be then, I need to deploy a database for my CMS. I need to deploy different environments. And so they knew intuitively that a managed service would be very monetizable. And so they launched Payload Cloud more recently this year, and they've been successful in bringing that to market. 
So I think it's not a super concise or specific answer, but it really comes down to the founder and having a deep understanding of the pain points that the developers that are deploying their open source software run into and being able to solve that through a commercial motion. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Is it, and maybe like a good foundation. And then, cause I want to kind of explore some of the trends that you're seeing and some of the companies you have found interesting, but maybe starting from the sort of database layer as a foundation. I'm curious how you would kind of segment different, you've mentioned a few, right? Kind of segmenting different types of databases, you know, time series, vector, dolap. Like, how do you think about the landscape of sort of here are the meatiest buckets of how folks are sort of creating value? And then maybe we can dive into like from there, what are the emerging trends that you find interesting? Yeah, so the way that we think of the map, obviously a very MongoDB-centric way of, of thinking about the landscape. But if you imagine an image in your head and maybe in the bottom left is OLTP databases. And the, the, that's your core application database where transactions are happening. I like to say it's a day one decision for an application developer is what's the OLTP database I'm going to use. Then there's all these other uses of the operational data. And we put those in boxes around the OLTP database. So often you'll have some sort of streaming system that's either ingesting data that's coming off the database or it's uh, sending data to the database. Oftentimes you need full text search for the data that's in your OLTP database and maybe a few other different functionality. And then there's things that are that's upstack from that database. So you may actually use some sort of platform as a service to deploy that database and your whole application stack, some sort of abstraction layer. And that's kind of what we think of as upstack. And so maybe somewhere upstack is a CMS like payload, for example, which is a nice framework that you can use to deploy your, your application database as well as some of the business logic on top of it. And then as we think about what moving to the right, that's where you get into the data movement tools. So think about your ETL tools that move your data from a transactional database to more of an analytical store. And then to the very right, that's where you get into the analytical workloads. And so companies like Snowflake, Databricks, that are really optimized for data science and analytics workloads. And then there's a whole ecosystem around those analytical workloads, things like data quality that has emerged in recent years, different notebooks that may sit on top of the analytical database, that sort of stuff. Yeah. It's super interesting to think about the stack. You guys are obviously investing in different aspects of that. When you think about how much complexity there is in building different data pipelines and running different jobs and thinking about this entire process, does it feel like increasingly you're seeing companies try to consolidate the number of vendors that they have within the stack? Like it feels like it was maybe potentially kind of a, a zerpy thing where you know you have a bunch of different tools for every single possible piece of the stack. Or is it still very much folks are looking for best in class for whatever specific part of the of the stack they're trying to accomplish? At MongoDB, for us, we think about a lot about our right to play. So we think about the responsibilities of the software developer who is our primary persona and what they are trying to build. And that's how we think about pro where our right to play is. And so, for example, we launched Atlas Search a couple of years ago. We have a lot of people that use it for full text search. And so you think about part of the developer's role with operational data is making it searchable on a web application. If I launch an e-commerce store, I want someone to very easily be able to search through my product catalog. So us adding that behind a familiar MongoDB SDK and driver made a lot of sense for us as a product expansion area. And so we are seeing that there are vendors like us who have opportunities to naturally expand 
and simplify architectures in ways that really solve developer or maybe in some of our peers' cases, they're solving data engineers or data analysts' problems and simplifying their architectures. We also see examples of companies that move into spaces where maybe they don't have a right to play. And then you start to see a retrenchment from customers to say, hey, you know, maybe I, I tried something from a vendor that I trusted for XYZ use case. They moved into Y use case or a different use case, and that didn't quite work out. And so I think that that vendors have to be very careful about what workloads can be consolidated uh, versus which ones really deserve an independent database. Well, you bring up a really interesting point because you'd mentioned kind of further up the stack. And in many ways, folks are trying to, you know, whether it's a data store or data science workload specifically, you have the data bricks and the snowflakes of the world. But in other ways, folks are you're starting to see, you know, applications get built on top of some of those platforms and some of those folks try and strive to sort of potentially replace some of that downstream stack that you've talked about. What do you think that means for the database market in general? Like how does the does it continue to be consolidation and everybody kind of tries to expand their to your point that sort of right to win? Is everybody trying to expand that right to win or how does that play out? I think there are areas that we've seen over time where people thought that they were areas that deserved an independent database company and a separate database. And it turns out that your existing operational database, or maybe in other cases, your existing data warehouse could really solve those problems. And the category or the workloads weren't distinct enough that really deserved their own category. So I think to some extent, that's where you will you have and will see some consolidation. But then there are fundamentally different sides or different types of databases that at least until now have remained different. So I'm not sure how familiar you are with HTAP or this idea of a hybrid transactional analytical database. That's That's an idea that a lot of people are excited about and has been talked about for a long time. But fundamentally, it does seem like they're the type of workload that's suited for an operational database versus the type of workload that's suited for an analytical database are distinct enough that in the majority of the cases, you want to leave those separate. Interesting. I'd love to like walk through that a little more. What do you feel like are some of the changes that have been driving that? Like, Because it feels like there is some element of best in class to that, right? Where people are trying to solve a very specific job, they need a very specific database to do it. And one of the reasons I ask this is, I'm trying to understand how do people size up the opportunity for new types of databases. So you look at like a, I think Pinecone is one that's emerged as a very popular vector database. They're trying to solve a very specific job. Folks are are sort of leveraging them for very specific use cases. And so it still feels like it lends itself to a, hey, we want to try and find the best in class for what we're trying to do. But what are the driving forces that have created these opportunities that you're describing? The way I would put it, it's not necessarily whether something's best in class or not. I would say that people want a database solution that meets the requirements of the particular workload. So, for example, if I'm building an application that involves grabbing context, which is, and I'm using nearest neighbor to search to grab context, and I'm going to pass it to an LLM, which is then going to provide some answer back to an end user. The vector search portion is likely not going to be the bottleneck, right? The bottleneck is going to be the performance of the LLM and how quickly that they can return the answer to the ultimate question. I think with vector search just in particular, we generally don't know 
all the requirements that are going to emerge in terms of what types of workloads and what what are the performance characteristics that those workloads will demand. There's a lot of excitement and there's some early evidence around certain things being important and certain things being less important. But ultimately, there's not a lot of use cases that are in production that dictate what the performance characteristics of a winning vector database need to be. The other thing I would mention is when people talk to customers, nobody's dying to manage another database system. So in many ways, I kind of think about it as it's our race to lose. People want to be able to use Atlas Vector Search if they have data that lives in Atlas already and they want they need to do nearest neighbor search on that data. They want to be able to use Atlas Vector Search. That's going to be their obvious place they're going to check. And then again, if it turns out that for whatever reason, uh, the workload characteristics don't match what we're able to provide, then yes, then there's an opportunity for other vector search players. But in that particular case, we'd love to be able to simplify that experience for the developer. So maybe stepping back to an even higher level, because I think this is a really valuable thing to better understand is there's a lot of excitement around AI and, and databases for AI use cases. And it sort of stirred up a lot of fervor. If I take a step back and I think about, all right, at its core, here's the like, almost effectively the TLDR of Mongo's core product, of, of Atlas core product, and what that accomplishes for folks. And then I think about a vector database. When the vector Atlas vector search, is it accomplishing the exact same thing? Are there key differences that folks are using you know, one or the other for, like, maybe help me understand how people are making purchasing decisions for if they're comparing Atlas Vector Search to something else. Like, what are the core components that people are thinking about? Yeah, I want to leave it high level, just because uh, you should for sure have our Atlas Vector Search product manager on here, Kyle, to go deeply into Atlas. But I'll tell you what what we've seen in the market more generally, as we've talked to vector search companies and, and talked to different customers which is there's several use cases that have emerged. One is similarity search. And this is some, a use case that's been around for a long time. The idea is even as an e-commerce store, if I want to have something more, I should say, different than full text search, I can leverage nearest neighbor as a way to augment the way I do search and, and retrieve things different, a little bit differently and or retrieve a different set and or rank the items that are retrieved a little bit differently. Then the more new use case that we're seeing that there's a lot of excitement around is this retrieval augmented generation use cases where someone is essentially looking for context that will be passed to an LLM that will then be used to, to answer a question. And in, in those use cases, again, it's, it's a nearest neighbor search, but I think a lot of very smart people, uh, you know, people that, are, that have been building these types of systems for some time, would say that it's not always necessarily a nearest neighbor search. You need a combination of different search methodologies, different ways to grab the right context to answer a particular problem. And of course, nearest neighbor search is one of those, but maybe not the most relevant one for every single use case. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. And definitely it's like, I think that sort of foundational level understanding is pretty important because it also kind of paves the path for what are the most exciting things that are happening next. And one of the things that I think about a lot is trying to understand like, you know, things like generative AI, what implications they have for existing technology that folks are using. And so within the database world we've been talking about, 
I'd love to better understand how you think the implicate or like what you think the implications of generative AI are. You know, you think about things like natural language querying and making it much more easy to tap into a database and understand the context of the data that's there. But curious what comes to your mind when you're thinking about, you know, what are the implications of all this stuff for what we're doing? Even before all of this AI hype, one of the things that we thought about a lot is the number of developers the world wants to solve software needs is a much bigger number than the number of developers that are produced by the the university system. And so what that means is there are a lot of self-taught developers. There are developers that are learning on YouTube. There are developers that are learning by simply looking at tutorials, Stack Overflow, um, and even TikTok. And so there's a lot of ways that developers are enabling themselves to create interesting applications. And the generative AI capabilities and the ability to generate code or complete code is only going to accelerate the capabilities of those developers and how many software developers that are capable of building apps in the world, that whole number. So we think there's going to be a massive opportunity for more and more applications to be built in the coming years because people are now empowered by AI and the ability to generate code that way. And then specifically to your point, it's interesting to see how quickly these LLMs can uh, be fine-tuned to write really well-formed, in our case, MQL, in other databases' case, SQL, and be able to go from natural language to query language really quite nicely with just a little bit of careful prompting and and fine-tuning. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And maybe even branching out from that, because it's what I like is it seems like the way you guys talk about what you're focusing on as MongoDB Ventures and the investing side. It's really this this thing you talked about earlier, which is addressing the challenges and complexities related to data and the developer experience, right? And so tackling that mission, obviously, like there are some core things that have deep implications for Mongo's core business, but there's a lot of things on that stack. There's a lot of data and developer tools that are trying to solve problems for folks. And so maybe now branching out from the database conversation we've been having, what are the things that you are most excited about from an investment perspective? What do you think has staying power? What do you think is really catching people's excitement? Yeah, for sure. I think that there is an entire ecosystem and stack that's going to be built around foundational models. And this is in a very unique perspective. I think a lot of venture investors are excited about companies that are emerging that are solving problems. We invested together in a company called Nomic. We're incredibly excited about the work that they're doing around the prize that we see from the MongoDB seat is when can we make AI accessible for every software developer such that you don't need a machine learning engineer or a data scientist to kind of help me get a application built around a foundational model. And so Nomic's ability to visualize massive vector sets really speaks to that and helps people intuitively understand like, hey, I have this really long vector, but if I do dimensionality reduction, which Nomic does for me, and then I plot it on a 2D scatter plot, I can really understand what it means for two different points to be close together in a vector space. And that makes the whole idea of nearest neighbor search more approachable and really helps people understand what's happening when they take a data point and generate a vector embedding off of it. That's a really good one. Also, I think that you can kind of track this through a similar life cycle where you basically have, you have this sort of corpus of data that exists, a business is is crafted, you have these foundation models, some proprietary, some open source. What you're describing, you know, like you mentioned Nomic, 
they've made it much easier to understand and fine tune those models. One of the areas that goes the next step in the life cycle of using a model is being able to put these models into production. And I've kind of had this line, I've been thinking about it a lot, where it feels like the both like the technical capability of a foundation model, the generalizable technical capability of a foundation model is really powerful. And the excitement that people have is palpable, right? But those have sort of raced far ahead of like both the technical capabilities internally uh, for most companies and the like skill, like the human capital available, right? It's just like a massive shortage of people that have the deep expertise to really effectively put these models into place. And so it feels like the next step in the life cycle is being able to orchestrate some of these models and put them into production. And you have everything from the sort of tectons of the world trying to make it possible to put ML models into, into applications in production. But then you also have some of these, you know, taking various approaches, but the replicates and modals and base tens of the world, right? I'm curious what you think about this piece of the puzzle, because it feels very powerful and sort of necessary to enable people to orchestrate these models. But at the end of the day, like it's very dependent on everything upstream. It's very dependent on the, the models themselves and the sort of compute providers around that. But curious what you think of that part of the life cycle. Yeah, it's, it is a space that we're spending a lot of time in. And we do feel like, to your point, there's a lot of top-down pressure for developers to figure out how to get a model into production and get an application up and running. And there's a lot of building blocks that are readily available to them. Obviously, there's several LLMs that are available if they don't want to host their own. And if they do want to host their own, companies like Modal are making it a lot easier for them to orchestrate some of the infrastructure and make it happen. Then there's vector databases. So the raw tools and and then there's uh, frameworks like Llama Index and LangChain that, that allow me to put it together. So to your point, the raw tools are there to increase the speed at which I can get something into let's say, prototype. And where we are spending a lot of time is trying to figure out where people are running into bottlenecks, then taking something from prototype into production. And so for for example, you make the good point of model hosting. What do I do if I don't want to take and go into production with OpenAI's API? And for whatever reason, I want to maybe say go into production with an open source model. Then the question is, okay, do I go to Modal and ask them to help me? Or do I go to maybe one of their competitors? And so we are spending time trying to figure out what the right value creation is in that space. And we think from a venture's perspective that the key question is, what is the right abstraction layer for the developer? So is it at the Modal layer or is it something even more abstracted than Modal? There's an interesting company that's still in stealth, but the idea is they only run a subset of models, unlike Modal, which is more of a blank canvas. They're a little bit more prescriptive around some, let's call it four models. But because they've optimized their hardware to run those models, they charge per token instead of charge per compute. And that's an interesting idea. We don't know if it's what developers want yet, but that concept seems very powerful to us. I love that. Maybe a final question for you, because you've talked a lot about both as companies, you're trying to position yourself in the places where you have the right to win, whether that is like the specific developers or data scientists you have access to already with your existing products. And how do you expand into that, own more of that sort of mind share or whatever. And then there's also this function that you've described of like really mapping to the specific use case and understanding the intricacies of that. 
it keeps bringing me back to this argument of consolidation. And it feels like this, especially at the infrastructure level, it feels very difficult to have an all-in-one product. Like it feels like there will always be these these sort of nuances, depending on how you want to set up your environment, that it's very difficult for one product to have an end-to-end solution per se. Whereas like at the application level, even you look at things like GitLab, GitLab has been able to have a number of different products across the DevOps lifecycle, but it's not necessarily at the infrastructure layer. It feels like that's maybe more of a difficult thing to consolidate. But I'm curious if you agree with that or if you feel like it's just a matter of being able to launch the right products at the right time. I think that it's always a balance of when you're able to meet requirements. Like I go back to the core workload question, which is there are different characteristics of different workloads. And that's the natural kind of impediment for one vendor to go and try to solve everybody's problems. But I think one thing that we've learned is that over time, you're able to improve your product and solve more and more of those problems. But it's not something where I would expect, you know, in the next decade, massive consolidation in the space. It's something that's more a slow accumulation of more workloads that are fitting into select vendors that are able to continuously prove to developers that they're able to solve their problems in ways that still meet the requirements of what was perceived as a best-in-breed solution. Very cool. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. Siraj, thank you so much for coming on, walking me through the details here. I think it's super interesting, the purview that you guys have to be able to see all the stuff that's unfolding and wishing you the best in finding the next great thing in the stack. Yeah, thank you so much, Kyle. It's been fun to talk and thank you very much for having me on. Thanks for listening to Contrary Research Radio. If you want to hear or read more from us, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast player or visit us at research.contrary.com. Contrary.com.